How many of you have ever got an F on an assignment? Does that feel good when you get an F? You know, sometimes when you see the word F, which means failure, we feel like we are failures. Well, did you know that failure isn't final? It's possible for students who get bad grades to become diligent and turn their academic career around. The same is also true in the life of people. Do you know that God's people fail? Sometimes we do things that are catastrophic. We just can't believe that we would even do it. When we watch the news and we see about political people, military people, the scandals that are all over the the nation that come out in the paper or on the news, mayors who were the governors who were the highlight of COVID-19 TV are now exposed as being hypocritical rats. News anchors who everyone trusted and listened to for their counsel are finally exposed and now they're seen as sinners who need mercy and help. And you don't have to look far in the community or anywhere else to see that people are exposed over a period of time. Whether they're Christians or they're non-Christians, this doesn't matter. What does matter is that sin eventually finds people out. Now, some people may be able to hide that sin, and they may take it all the way to the grave. But there will come a day when God, the text says, will bring to light all of the deeds of man before their eyes. And those that are not covered under the blood of Jesus, we will have to answer for. Now, I have hope for you today, so I don't want you to leave here in despair. If you know Christ Jesus as your Savior, I want to give you a promise. God says that those who know Christ are declared righteous and their, their sins are paid for and to be brought up no more. So God's people don't have to fear the judgment of sin, but what we do have to fear as God's people is hiding our unconfessed sin. Now, that's a whole other subject that I'll get into at another time, but... God will right all wrongs. Judicially, we won't be punished in hell for sin as Christians, but we will lose rewards. So one of the great challenges to a pastor is to help his people prepare themselves for the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. Trust me, none of us want to go to the judgment seat of Christ with anything in our life that is against someone else that we did not try to resolve. Because if we do and we do go there, he will judge and we will lose reward in eternity. So that's kind of a caveat to where we're headed today. I'm in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and you know the story. This is the story of the sin of David and Bathsheba. It's David's sin, not hers, and the text is going to point its finger right at his chest and talk about how he failed. So we're going to look today at the amazing grace of God. And here's the point. Even in our darkest moments of sin and failure, God's grace is still there reaching out for us. Now, I don't know how many times I've talked to people that have done things that are terrible, and they will say, I've done something so bad God cannot forgive me. Well, there's two things you need to understand. Number one, God is a whole lot bigger than you think he is. 
And number two, when God says that he can and will forgive and will never bring up again, he comes through on his word. God is not someone we have to question. God is not like the commercials that we see on TV that has a great picture, but then when you go to actually partake, it's not nearly as good as the picture. The most disappointed I ever was was seeing a picture of a Big Mac on TV. And then you go and open the box, and the thing slid all over the place. The hamburger's all fat. And then I actually saw where the hamburger comes from. Oh, that's, we won't even go there. But God is not like the pictures of deception that we sometimes see. God does exactly what he says he will do. Winston Churchill once wrote, Success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. Now, success is not final. What we're going to see about this man, we've been hard on Saul for the past several weeks, haven't we? And, you know, God, because Saul was a, he was a spear-throwing madman, God now chooses another man to replace Saul who disobeyed God. But Saul and David have something in common. You know what that was? They both disobeyed him. But the reason David was a man after God's heart is because David, when he was confronted with his sin, was willing to admit it and confess it and make it right. took him a little bit of time. You know, Daniel read Psalm 32. Psalm 51 is also another psalm about David's one year of trying to hide this terrible sin. But his success is what brought him down. But his failure was what lifted him back. But David paid for it the rest of his life. Now, laying a little bit of background here, you know the passage, so I don't have to repeat it. When Saul failed to disobey, uh, failed to obey God's orders, God told him, I am pulling the kingship from you. And so God pulled his special anointing upon Israel's king, which was his spirit that he placed upon him. This was not for salvation. It was for service. He pulled the Holy Spirit and his empowerment from Saul, and he gave Saul instead an evil spirit. And God took the spirit and he put it upon David, who was a man after his own heart. Now please, do not read church teaching into the passage between Saul and David. You will be so confused You'll think that, oh, if I sin, God's going to take the Holy Spirit from me. No, he doesn't. This was a special act of anointing where God recognized the king of Israel as his son. Today you have become my son, Psalm 2 says. It's a coronation psalm. It's what they used to say to the king. You are the physical representation of me on the earth. Now you lead the people righteously and you judge righteously. Saul disobeys. David now is the man after God's heart. David is selected as the king. That's a whole story in itself. You all know it. David was the smallest out of seven brothers. Samuel, go anoint him. Samuel goes and looks at Elab and all of his brothers. They were tall and handsome. And he said, surely this is the Lord's anointing. He said, nope, not him. Go to the next one. David goes all the way down the line. And finally he says, Jesse, do you have any more kids? I said, yeah. Got one out in the barnyard. Go get him. <clears throat> Soon as David comes back, God said, that's my man. 
Samuel anoints David, the Spirit comes upon him, and then the next thing you know, here is David running for his life from Saul. David defeats Goliath, or I like to say God defeats Goliath, through the hand of David. David finds favor with the people. He successfully flees from Saul for years while Saul is hunting him down. He manages to do something that is nobody could ever do. You know what he did? He united the Democrats and Republicans. Literally. Second Samuel chapter 5, because the Spirit of God was upon this man, the, the divided nation of Israel came together and said, we, will, we want this man David to rule over us. And there was peace in the land. I mean, you know, maybe that's what we ought to pray for in America. Peace in the land because of a righteous man who wanted to rule for God. God moved upon the hearts of the people. Everything is going great. Look in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 10. I just want to read this summary statement from everything I've been telling you. And David became greater and greater. What is the reason? For the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. So in case anybody thinks that David's greatness was from his education or his military strategy or his looks or anything else, this text wraps up in summary form why David was so successful. He was successful because the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. God was with him. True success in life is when we live our life and God's presence and blessing is with us. And when that happens, and when we're in our right frame of mind, God gets the credit for all of our success and everything that people want to heap on us. We know that it's not of us. We know that our work ethic, we know that our desire, we know that our intellect... Everything that we have was a gift from God for us to steward. And when we use that, God gets the glory for it. Now let me ask you a question. When you're in this position, what happens? One person said that failure is not man's greatest enemy. It's actually success. The greatest period of our testing comes not when we fail but it comes when we're tested. Now one day in 2 Samuel 7, David was sitting around his house, and I want to read just a couple of passages here, verses. Chapter 7, verse 1, When the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. Now who caused the peace to come on the land? Are you all hearing me? When the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies. When you read the Old Testament, you'll see that God stirs up other nations to invade. God is orchestrating every bit of this. This should give the believer some type of comfort today when we look at the news and see all the restlessness in the nation. This is another sermon too, by the way, but I personally believe God is stirring the nations. He's stirring the nations. Because he has a plan and he's orchestrating everything out. But in this particular time, God had given David rest. There were no threats from the nations. And as he was sitting there, 
the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Okay, you want to build God a house? Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, every king, by the way, had a prophet. When the king wanted to hear from God, he would call the prophet. Nathan had to be his prophet. Nathan came to him. David told him, I've, I'm looking at my house. You know, my house is all wonderful and great, but God's house is in shabbles. And he's remodeled it. It's going around in a tent from here to there. I, I want to make God something really nice. And Nathan says, then, Lord bless you, David. Go do what you want. Now, God contacts David or Nathan and says, uh, you didn't ask. Notice what happens in verse 4. That same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell David, thus is what the Lord would say. Would you build me a house to dwell in? And then God gives him the history of all of that. Then you get down in verses 13, 14, and 15, and God says, No, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you one. And here was the promise God made to David. You will never lack a son to sit on the throne of Israel. Now, if you don't understand this, you will not understand the gravity of chapter 11. Before David's great sin, and by the way, God knew he was going to do it, God made him a promise that he never made to Saul. And here's what it was. David, I'm making an unconditional promise to you that no matter if you are wicked or not, you are going to be the man through whom the dynasty of Israel travels until my son sits on the throne. Now that was an unconditional promise. Now the big question is going to come up, is it possible for a person to sin so bad that God would just say, <clears throat> even after I've made you this promise, I'm, I'm not going to fool with you. I'm not fooling with you. Well, Keep this in mind, you will never lack a man to sit on the throne. Now turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we're going to see David's journey to failure. Now, if we were taking snapshots of <clears throat> 2 Samuel 11, we would have eight snapshots. This is not my outline, by the way. I tweaked it just a little. But somebody else had such a good outline, I just took most of it and then tweaked just a couple of places. But this is how the scene is laid out. 11.1. In the spring of the year, <clears throat> the time when the kings would go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. Now, just quickly, you're not in class here, but I do want to give you a little bit of info. In the spring of the year, ancient Near East kings, the rains would come would clear off the roads, everything would be good for travel. This was a time of the year when kings would go and advance the borders of their land. Kind of like Vladimir Putin is trying to do in Russia with Ukraine. Now we see this as some foreign thing that has never happened before, but all you got to do is read your Bible and find out that you know the nations did this. They tried to expand their border to increase their power and so forth. And so this is exactly what David's doing but the difference is God promised him the land and he gave it to him. So instead of David being where he should have been, which is where? Go ahead and say it. 
He should have been out on the battlefield. What was he doing? He was kicked back on his haunches in nothing but inactivity. Now, if you if you're now Christopher, he's studying Hebrew. You know, Christopher's going into ministry. Circle that little word in the spring and that that is a key phrase to say you better pay attention right here because this is going to be a turning point in David's life. Pay attention to me. Now notice what happens in verses 2 through 5. Here is David's sin that's lodged down in his heart. Now remember, we laid it on Saul pretty hard, didn't we? Now let's look at the man after God's own heart. When he's kicked back on his haunches, sitting back, not doing anything, just lounging around in time. It happened, there's another word, Christopher, late one afternoon when David arose from his couch, notice he's napping, and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Let's pause right there. Back in this time, people had palaces, and on top of the palace was a flat roof. They had a wall made about waist high where they could go sit and they could have some type of privacy. But as kings would do in that day, they would build their houses taller than everyone else. You know, it's kind of like Islam. They, there is no building in the Middle East in Islam that's allowed to be higher than a mosque because it towers over everything else. So there was an expression here, kind of like the, uh, the business entrepreneurs in America. They wanted to have the tallest high-rise building in the city so everybody would pay attention to them. This is what David did. He's out lounging on the top of his porch and he looks down over at uh, the therapist and he sees this woman named Bathsheba. Now, David has been reigning for about 10 years now. He has several wives and he inherited several more. He's got his whole harem of women. And all of a sudden, in the midst of his doing nothing, he sees this one woman and his lust begins to rage. Now, you would think when he sends and says, Who is that? And they say, Well, this is her. By the way, she's the wife of you. You would think he would go, oh, you know, hands off. Because I know the Ten Commandments of God, which he told me to write for myself and read all the time. And one of them is, do not commit, don't covet another man's wife. Don't commit adultery. I know this. I, I know this. You would think he'd say off limits. Well, what does he do? This is interesting, by the way. So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now, I'm I'm not going to get too graphic here. All I'm going to say is that any time you see these two words, took and lay, and they're in three different contexts, it's always in the idea of forced. Okay, I'll leave it right there. Bathsheba wasn't in this. I heard one preacher one time trying to make it say it was her fault. Well, she shouldn't have been out on the roof. And you know, I was sitting there going, oh my goodness, go, go back and read. 
This is all on David. As a matter of fact, over in 1 Kings, uh, God makes a lot of that clear. This was David's issue. Notice, she came and he lay with her. And there's a parenthesis here that is important when you're studying the Bible. Notice the little parenthesis. Now, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Now, what does that mean? Uh, Without going into anatomy, it's going to later explain that she was now in the season for pregnancy. There is no way to get around this. When David does this act, you better be sure it's going to be found out. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now, let's pause for a moment. We are all, in some sense, masters at deception. Down in the crevices of the human heart, and I'm trying to drive a point home here, even a man or a woman after God's own heart, there is this concept of self-deception. In other words, we like to lie to ourselves. I can do this, and somehow or another I'll use my advantage, and I will get out of this. And so David now begins to concoct this idea, look in verse 6, of how he's going to get out of this. So he sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came, David asked, how's Joab doing? And how are the people doing? And how's the war going? Now, you've got to see the irony here. Joab is a fighting man who is loyal to David and Israel. And He is pulled off the field. Instead of David just texting some kid and saying, how's it going? He pulls one of his main warriors off and he's like, what's going on, man? Just small chat. And I'm sure Uriah, like we are, when somebody who never talks to us, pulls us to the side and starts being very friendly. Hey, how you doing? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? What's this person being so friendly to me for? So here's Uriah being pumped by David, if you want to use that term. And so then in verse 8, David says to Uriah, Glad you got to come in on vacation. Now while you're here, go down to your house and wash your feet. That's a euphemism there. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. Now David's not only buttering him up, he's, he's trying to persuade him. What did he buy him? A present from the king. We'll just leave it there. But whatever the present was, he wanted Uriah to go back to Bathsheba because he wanted to concoct some story when Bathsheba got pregnant to say, oh yeah, don't you remember Uriah came off the battlefield during that time? So, you know, I mean, definitely that's his child. Now, are you all following me? Do you you not see how the human heart is exposed. By the way, one of the greatest evidences of inspiration for God's Word is that it tells the truth about its greatest heroes. No man would have ever written this about himself. He would have never told the truth of his heart 
But I'm going to tell you something. The Holy Spirit told the truth about David's heart. So here he is, setting Uriah up with his beautiful wife. After he's been off to war, now he's going to work it out. So now notice what happens. David is opening this invitation for Uriah, but now notice Uriah's integrity, verses 9 through 13. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. Now you should write 1 Samuel 21.5 out to the side there, and you can go back and read it sometime, but this is the part of the story. One time David had a bunch of men and he was going to go out to war and David made this own rule, his rule, that when men are in conflict and war, the other men in war will not go back and enjoy themselves. David made the rule. Now Uriah is following David's own advice that he doesn't want to follow himself. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, can you imagine this scene? David probably got up the next morning and went, Uriah, leave. And they said, Uriah did not go down to his house. David went, oh, my scheme is being thwarted. David said to Uriah, gets him to come back to him again. Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, listen to what a rebuke this would be. And Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab, my commander, and the servants of my lord are camping out in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? My comrades are on the field. Do you think that I can go enjoy myself while my fellow soldiers are up there dying and in discomfort? Now hold on for a minute. Can you imagine the arrow from heaven that pierced David's heart? Now, let me share a little bit of transparency here. As a pastor, sometimes you get to talk to people, and we are not professional counselors. We have people who are. But one of the things that you need to know about everyone you talk to is we are all sinners. Did you know that? And there's not one person who lives on a holy grail and is any different than anyone else. We're all sinners. The difference is sometimes training gives you tools and life experience gives you tools to help people walk with or walk through or deal with certain things. There was a time early in my pastorate when I was talking to someone and they came in and actually shared a story about how selfish they had been toward their wife. And I was sitting there listening to that man and I'm, gonna, I'm just being open here. While this man begins to tell me his own selfishness, I had this moment right here. It was like, Buster... I brought this man in to tell you this story because that's you. I mean, I was like, oh. so I, I listened to him the best I could, and I was like, man, I've got to go tell my wife I'm sorry. This is terrible. So David's sitting here talking to Uriah, and now his own heart is becoming convicted because David is now seeing that Uriah is actually a better man than he is. 
Now, watch the mountaintop here. The man after God's own heart, and God was with him, and God blessed him, and God gave him. And now notice what happens. He descends all the way down to where his common fighter on the field is in a better spiritual place than he is. And by the way, this happens in leadership. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. You can rise up to the top. You can be the top of your institution. You can be the top of your... And oh, how the mighty can fall. And here David has fallen. So Uriah goes on to say, As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also and tomorrow, and I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And then David invited him... And he ate in the presence and he drank so that he made him drunk. So David's now thinking, well, I'll try to intoxicate him. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Even in his drunken stupor, Uriah did not succumb. Well, what happens... Now David is going to concoct another scheme. You know, sin is a vicious thing, isn't it? Notice what happens. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting. Now I need to stop here, because if you don't get this, you'll miss it. When David and his men went out, they went out to fortify or encompass a city. This is how they won wars. They would take their army out and they would line around the city and they would make the people not be able to come or go. They would have to eat all of their food and then there became infighting. They, were, they would become hungry, then this one would take food from that one. The next thing you know, there would be war within and it would drive the people to such a point of starvation that they would fight and then they would try to flee. And when they fled the city... This is when the surrounding army would then go in and they would overtake them. So David's men are waiting around this particular city to overcome it. And so he tells Joab, and by the way, military strategy, this is so odd, because what you do is you wait them out. What David is going to tell Joab is, you take Uriah and you send him all the way up to the wall where the people are sitting there on guard waiting, And then when he gets in the heat of the battle, you pull the other men back and leave him there by himself and let them shoot him with arrows. Now can you imagine David's scheme here? So when Joab receives this report in verse 18, he does something a little bit different. Instead of just sending Joab up by himself, he sends the entire elite force of Marines up with him. And I'm going to tell you the story He sends him up with all the other men. And then after he gets him up there, he pulls him back. Uriah dies. And now Joab has to report back to David that not only Uriah died, but the Greek translation of this this copy of 2 Samuel, we're not sure about the accuracy, but it also says that 18 of David's elite men died with him. Now, hold on for a minute. All because David doesn't want to be exposed for 
this heinous sin that he's committed, now he is willing to recklessly endanger not only the innocent man Uriah, but also the other elite forces. This reminds me of my, how my blood boils when I see political things where some of our politicians in Washington can send in some of our best elite fighters into the, the dumbest, most dangerous place where even the military people themselves say, we should not do this. Instead of listening to them, the, the people up in the power say, you are to do this and that's an order, and they know it's going to be their death sentence. Well, Joab knows this is the most foolish, ignorant thing he's ever heard, but this is where David is at. So Joab sends information back to David, and when you read this carefully, the story is made just a little bit to protect Joab. And I'm going to just quickly read part of it. The text says, Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting of the king, then if the king's anger arises, because he gets mad at me for doing what he told me, don't y'all like being in that position as an employee? Your boss says, you go do that. You're thinking, if I do that... It is going to create a disaster. And you tell them, I don't think we... You do it anyway. And then you do it and it happens and then your boss goes, I told you not to do that. This is what Joab's thinking. If the king's anger rises and if he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know what they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerobosheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? You know better. If he says that to you, and he says, why did you go so close? Then you say to him, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David, I had to do what you said. But if he he gets mad, you tell him, I did what you told me. Uriah is dead. Now notice, notice this. Notice David's just, yeah, okay. Verse 22, so the messengers went and came and told David all that Joab had sent to him to tell. And the messenger said to David, the men gained in advance over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Uh. Joab, just don't worry about it. The sword will eat this one and he'll eat that one. Now, by the way, you should write down 12.10, 2 Samuel 12.10, because these words are going to come back and haunt David. You know what God's going to tell David? And we're going to look at this next week. He's going to tell him, the sword shall never depart from your family. David, you have sinned. And just so the sword eats this one and that one, he's going to eat your family for the rest of the time. Now notice what happens. And he says, go ahead and encourage the men. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. 
And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But underline this in your text. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Back up in verse 27, David says, literally, don't let this be evil in your eyes, Joab. But in 27b, when God sends back the message, he says this was evil in the eyes of the Lord. So what David is now discounting, God sees very well. Now, here's the story. Now, what is the point? Five quick lessons that we learn from David's failure. Lesson number one, if you wish to avoid failure, you better make wise decisions. I could add here, it only takes one bad decision to take your life down. One bad one. A second lesson that we learn is this. Self-deception, perhaps, is the greatest deception of all. When we get to the place in our life where we are actually convincing ourselves We are justifying ourselves for something we know that's wrong. Have you ever seen the alarm go off? I mean, every light on the dash, boom, boom. I mean, this is like the Holy Spirit working in our life going, Hold on! Pay attention! But when we get to where we are deceiving ourselves and actually enjoying it, we are in big trouble. This is right where David was. And then the third lesson we learn, and everybody, and I mean, listen, speaker included, every person here, I don't care how powerful anyone is in wherever they are, in whatever company or business or what have you, be sure of this. Eventually, our sin will find us out. I could stand up here and tell you story after story after story of people who have tried to hide their sin. But eventually, like water through a leaky roof, it will find the crack and the crevices and it will begin to drip and eventually it will begin to erode. Sin will find us out. And then number four... If we don't know this as of now, when we look at David's heart, and by the way, why does God give us this picture of David's heart and his mind, the way he thinks, his schemes and the way he concocts things? It is a warning to us that it's possible for even a man after God's own heart to be like this. And when we see this, apply the brakes. The human heart, God tells Jeremiah, is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And then Jeremiah, after he hears that, he says, Lord, who can know it? And what does God say? I, the Lord, know the heart and search the ways of man. God knows our heart. And then there's a fifth lesson that we learn, and that's this, that even though God knows our hearts and He knows our ways, isn't this amazing, folks? Yet... He is gracious towards us. 
Now, I'm going to skip ahead and ruin next week's lesson because the rapture may happen and I may not be able to preach it. But here's basically what happens. David is confronted, and after he passes sentence on someone else and not realizing he's doing it to himself, Nathan has a message for him, and this is what he says to him. He says, you shall not surely die. Even though the sword won't depart, you will not surely die. God is willing to forgive David of his sin. Can you believe that? Now, now listen. 2 Samuel 7 comes before 11. God promises to use David unconditionally. He's not going to let a, his throne ever lack a man to sit on it. Now you have chapter 11, 10 years later, David does this egregious sin. He breaks about every commandment you can ever imagine out of the ten. David just dashes them. Now this is a good question. Is God finished with him? And the answer is, thank God, no. Now does should God have just crossed him off the map? Don't ask that question because that puts us in God's position. But the point is, God didn't quit on his people. Now, can I give you some hope today? Can I give you some hope? Here's a man who had, he had committed such a heinous act in multiple levels, and God didn't quit on him. In fact, God pursued David. He let him get by for one whole year hiding up in his palace with Bathsheba, his stolen wife. And now what does God do? He reveals to us Psalm 32 that Daniel read this morning. While I laid up there hiding my sin, my bones ached. Day and night your hand was heavy on me. I could not escape. You hunted me down, God. And David thanked him. Now I'm going to instruct anyone who hears, let the wise one hear and let them respond, he says. What a wonderful, wonderful passage. Now, quickly, what are three reasons that we can conclude failure is never final? David blew it. And let me tell you something, next week on Father's Day, we're going to talk about how David's sin impacted his children. It's going to be a positive message. Don't, don't think, well, I'm going to avoid that one. I'm going to give you hope. Even though David blew it, God still blessed him. But here's the point we ought to learn from sin. Why is failure never final? Failure is never final because repentance is never final. God was waiting and giving David a chance to turn from his sin. By the way, repentance is for God's people. It is a change of mind about what we are doing that's displeasing to God. It's to change it and do what's right. And when we know what we've done is wrong, we are to repent from that and to turn from it and do what God tells us to do. And if we don't, what happens? 
then according to Hebrews chapter 12, who the Lord loves, He chastens and He scourges every son. Not to, not to judicially judge us, but listen, to correct us. Aren't you glad for correction? Parents, aren't you glad that you have a chance to correct your children? I mean, we should do this, especially while they're young, to help point them in the right direction. God does the same thing with His children. And failure is never final because repentance is still possible. It's possible to say, I see what I'm doing, it's wrong, and I now change my mind. Lord, help me not to do that again. There's a second reason that failure is never final, and that's because forgiveness is still available. God extends His gracious hand of forgiveness and offers that whoever will come will be forgiven. Look at the gracious offer today. Whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. You want your sin problem taken care of? You want forgiveness? The grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ extends that to us. And the only thing required of a person to do that doesn't know Christ is believe in His death, burial, and resurrection as the payment for your sin and for the gift of eternal life. Truly, truly, I say unto you, whoever believes in Me has everlasting life and has crossed over from death to life. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Believe in Christ. Ask for forgiveness. And even after God's children have trusted Christ as their Savior, we still do bad things. So what does a Christian do after they sin? What if you're in David's shoes? What if you're sneaking around at night looking at things you shouldn't or you're concocting things in your own mind? I mean, it's, it's happened to me in my ministry before. Without getting too personal, people listen and sit there and listen to messages while living in sin. And I could tell you a story right now, and some of you would know the person who was living in sin here and ultimately ended up losing his life. And his last words to me as I walked out one Sunday was, if you ever preach that loud again, I'm leaving. And then I found out he was living in adultery. Let's not fool ourselves. Failure is not final because forgiveness is still available. And then the third lesson we learn is that there's no sin that's greater than God's grace. You know, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans was laying out charges against mankind, and I mean he laid them out. Finally got to the end, and he answers the question somebody would say, well, what if I sin too much? What does Paul say? He said, where sin abounds, grace literally superabounds or much more abounds. It's not a license for sin, but it is notification that God is a forgiving, loving, and gracious God. Now, what do you do with all this? 
Well, first of all, if you've never trusted Christ as your personal Savior, I want you to imagine this. If you have not believed in Jesus for eternal life, every word, thought, and deed that you have ever done in your life, one day is going to be brought up before you. And every evil thing or anything that falls short of God's glory, in thought or in deed, is going to be put on one side of your life, and Almighty God is going to look at your sin, and He's going to look at your goodness, and He's going to say, you fall way short of my required righteousness. Your goodness will never outweigh your bad because it's impossible. Your righteousness is as filthy rags. And at the end, at the last judgment, the great white throne judgment, every person's soul and body will be joined together. John said, I saw the dead, small and great, stand in a body. And they were judged according to their works. And then all of our thoughts, deeds, actions... Everything will be fitted for us and eternal punishment will be our destiny. Now, I don't know about you. I don't want that. But I am not a truth teller, nor am I your friend if I don't tell you that. And no matter if you're here in person or you're watching this online or you watch this later, that is something that you as an individual must deal with personally between you and Almighty God. How do you get that out of your life? God has provided a way in the person of Jesus to take the penalty of that sin, totally erase it, are you listening? And then give you what you could never earn on your own. And that is His righteousness. Jesus' righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 God the Father made Him, Jesus, to be sin for us, and He knew no sin, so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, Jesus is our wisdom and our righteousness. He is the one who gives us what we could never earn on our own. And every person must deal with that. But what about... Believers, perhaps we're here this morning and the Spirit convicts our life. He points out things. We're not treating our wife the way we should. We're not treating our husband the way we should. We're not treating our children the way we should or our employees. Our kids aren't, kids aren't treating their parents the way they should. This is for you too, young people. Maybe we don't treat neighbors, co-workers people in our life, how we should. Maybe we're involved in stealing or lying or manipulating or cheating. I mean, I don't know. The gamut could go. But the Holy Spirit puts a fresh finger on our heart and says, this is where you've erred, my child. What do we do? 1 John 1, verse 9 says that if we Christians will say the same thing about our sin that God does. It's wrong. If we confess our sin, our great God 
is faithful and justified because of Christ's death on the cross to forgive us of our sins even after a Christian. And not only to forgive us, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you realize that sometimes we sin as believers and don't even know we sin? When we ask for forgiveness and we have a transparent heart that wants to be made right with God, God even forgives what we don't know we've done. To clean His children up for fellowship and for walking. And that's available to you. So where do we stand this morning? Would you bow your heads? Heads bowed and eyes closed this morning. This is where you have to talk to God. Sharon's going to come and play for just a moment this morning. I want to give you a chance to pray. And if God's Spirit points out anything in our life that we need to deal with, let's deal with it. If you're an unbeliever, you've never trusted Christ, you can do that today right where you're sitting. Simply by saying, Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for my sin and I trust you as my Savior to take away this penalty that I have incurred and give me your righteousness, which I could never earn. I trust you today for eternal life. If you're a believer this morning, maybe distance has come between you and God because of sin. i give you a few moments to deal with that right where you are. You talk to God. And Father, we thank you this morning for every prayer that was offered. And we thank you that you hear us, that you love us, and that you pursue us. And thank you for this story of David, which instructs us on what not to do. But if we do, do it. Thank you that you never stop pursuing your children. You truly are a good father. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for his death, his resurrection, which makes it possible for forgiveness and restoration. And I pray for the soul of any person who doesn't know Him, that they'll come to know Him as Savior. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.